welcome back to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2022 has been defined by another variant, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Shibani Mehta and this week we are discussing the history of India's nuclear program. Formal decolonization of India came 2 years after the terrific demonstration of the power of the atom in a volatile international order. The arrival of the nuclear age with the departure of the British presented Indian physicists a unique opportunity to take a capable decision on the nuclear question in a new country. In this episode of Interpreting India, we take a look at the relationship between science, state and nationhood in India. What does the history of the beginnings of nuclear research and education tell us about India's political ambitions? How did collaborations take place between philanthropists and scientists in early and mid 20th century India? Does popular media and culture influence the relationship between the scholar and the public? Joining us today to discuss this topic is Janvi Falke. Janvi Falke is a historian of science and technology. She is the author of Atomic State: Big Science in 20th Century India and is the founding director Science Gallery Bangalore. In 2020, she produced and directed the documentary film Cyclotron. Hi Janvi, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Interpreting India. This is the first one that we're recording physically in our offices um after a gap of about 2 years. So it's a uh, very exciting and we're glad that you were here for this episode. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Um I've been a fan of your work for many years now and uh <laughs> I've sort of closely followed it also because it ties in with my research interest in um, nuclear weapons and also i think your work has given us a lot of insight into the history of india's nuclear program um which is where i'd like to start our conversation uh so if we look at biopics and they've become tremendously popular in india in the last few years especially with the penetration of ott platforms um so while traditionally you had people uh, say sports persons or politicians or emperors being the focus of uh, of these stories the the sort of the penetration allows creators to look at different subjects now from stockbrokers to scientists and others and um I've noticed that there's a slight shift in the narrative as well so while it is about the accomplishments of individuals mm-hmm. um a sort of narrative is also on the bureaucratic politics in the country mm-hmm. uh how institutions function um whether they support these individuals or not uh, right and th- this is something that you've studied very closely in your work um so i wanted to know your take on the representation of scientific india scientific history in popular media okay so this is something you'll 
hear me say today, you'll hear me say this again, which is that in India, especially, but also across the globe, in fact, we have a very strong professional conversation around science and engineering. We do not have a cultural conversation. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that, um, in a family situation, for example, across you know the dining table, you will talk about grades, institutional rankings, admissions, entrance exams, and then eventually the degree and the pay package and a career path. Even when social scientists study it, we talk about upward social mobility, skills, training, etc. Rarely do we talk about the content outside of the institutional walls. And I think that is a problem. And we can, you know, enter that conversation a little down the line. But that is why biopics of people who are engaged in research of any kind are most welcome. Now, if you look at even Hollywood, you know, one is reminded of films like A Beautiful Mind, etc. It's not that there are that many films, right? Science fiction is another sort of, you know, genre and that has its cult following and, you know, a range of things happen. And that, to my mind, is a very interesting cultural conversation around what is possible with science, what is possible with engineering and, you know, what kind of futures do we want? Um, high-tech futures or, you know, as the latest Dune movie, in a sense, shows us, yes, extremely rarefied high-tech futures, but then with lots of sand in it. Um, so it's global or, yeah, it, it is global that we don't really have a very strong presence of figures from these areas of life in the public domain. And it has its costs because there is a distance between what happens in research labs and also in classrooms and the public at large. And hopefully, the coming of these kinds of programs um, will begin to create at least an interest or an interface, which if someone wants, they can begin to scratch at and you know find something else to, to look at. So uh, they're most welcome. They're most welcome. Um, and one hopes um, they they get properly done, right? Right. So, I mean, since we are talking about properly done, uh, most recently there was a, a show about India's nuclear program told through the lives of two individuals that are seen to kind of drive the movement since the late 1930s and then post-independence. Um, now, because it was widely accessible and also people are able to share their opinion a lot more now. Um, there was a lot of debate about what was portrayed and how it was portrayed. And mm -hmm. is it okay to dramatize something to keep people engaged? Or do you have to say stay true to the history of things? Um, is there a line that you would say that shouldn't be crossed? So... It's a difficult one, right? It's a cultural genre. And so in a sense, the expectations are um, that it entertains, informs, does a range of things, right? Keeps people engaged. I mean, one thing is life itself is actually quite interesting, right? For, for in many ways, um, as many have said, um, fiction has to, in a way, find a logic and to make things plausible. Life doesn't have that compulsion. Life just does whatever, right? Like, and, and there's no way to tell. So life is interesting. So to pick out 
interesting aspects of stories without necessarily looking to make controversy uh, is not is not that difficult, but also probably, you know, possible. Um, the only reason why one would want at least some degree of accuracy, uh, no matter what the film is about, whether it's about a sports person, a stockbroker, or a scientist or an engineer, is because culture has a reach that other forms don't, right? Like so biopics, films, uh, television series have a reach that other other formats don't. And therefore, it is important to not, in a way, twist things because young minds are looking at it and impressions persist, information persists. And once it congeals with other ideas or information that people have in their head, it's very hard to get that dislodged in the future. And in many ways, why would you... Why would you want to do it? So I think as a, as a historian, what would be interesting for me is to figure out probably by talking to the people who made um, make, made, a, made the series you mentioned, but also others is to find out why. What would be the reason to do this, right? What purpose does it serve? And, you know, we all have our guesses, but I think I'd like to know why. Because... Like I said, I think it's not an uninteresting story in itself. You know, late 1930s, starting out in an India that is not yet independent, where you don't even have a handful of highly trained scientists working on Indian soil to dream very big, irrespective of our moral position on the bomb or the space program, is not trivial. It's actually quite astonishing. At independence, there were probably three to four people who, in India, in all of India, who were trained to do experimental nuclear physics at the scale at which it was happening in most of the leading labs in the world. So, you know, it's not, it's not a story that needs any degree of spicing up, is what I would say. So coming to India's nuclear program and how it started off, um, you have uh, shown through your work that there are multiple individuals, but there's also the involvement of the state, uh, the bureaucracy, and of course, the sentiment of nationalism. Um, at the time of independence, it was for India to prove itself as a new independent nation that can uh, be as big and important as Europeans or the Americas. Um, how would you weigh each of these sort of three buckets, if I may call them, in driving India's nuclear program at the beginning? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. And I'm glad that you actually already identified that there's more than one motivating factor, right? So if you look at the late period between the late 30s and the late 40s, which is when the foundations of any potential program were laid, there are people who are qualified to do this work and who come from very, very different angles, right? And that's that's the beauty of history, right? Contingency, convergence, things that you can't necessarily predict or, you know, in a way, I mean, you can shape things, but you can't necessarily predict them in, in quite so direct ways. So you have, on the one hand, India becoming independent of imperial rule. And this newfound statehood is predicated on an understanding that in order to not be colonized again, especially in the context of the congealing Cold War and the two strong camps that are emerging by the late 1940s already, to maintain independence was of utmost importance. 
And so when you see the leadership, the political leadership of the time, their concerns are, and Nehru says it, and, and the first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru says it very directly, you know, that industrialization and industrial strength is going to be key in order to maintain independence. And in this context, when you see nuclear technology, especially after the use of the first atomic bombs in 1945, it holds the key not only to defense, but it holds the key to leapfrogging the industrial revolution that in a way missed India um, or was at least seen to have missed India uh, at that point of time. And so the political imperative is one of maintaining independence as the highest priority and industrializing as an equally important priority because those two were seen to be inseparable, right? So you have state interests and there's a, there's a range of people involved in thinking like this, right? Like, especially if you start reading the reports of the National Planning Committees, you know, several reports, you see this feeling in a way come through, right? Like, and, and I remember also talking to, you know, someone like my grandfather, um, who whose generation really believed that nuclear energy will be in many ways endless and the key to industrialization at high speed and take India out of the, you know, relatively dark ages into being uh, a nation among nations, right? Like, an, or an equal among equals. So there's that one bucket, right? Like with very clear motivations and a range of actors who have bought into it, industrial and political. Now, as I said earlier, there were barely three or four people who knew exactly what experimental nuclear physics was and how it could be done. Plus, if you look at the budget of the Manhattan Project, it was, if I remember correctly, four times the budget of British India or four times the budget of peacetime Norway and the equivalent of the budget of British India. Massive, essentially massive. Hundreds of laboratories, hundreds of people across countries, you know, Chalk River in Canada, Los Alamos and, you know, a range of laboratories and factories in the United States, uh, tube alloys and other programs in the, in the United Kingdom. Um, basically a multinational project. So when we talk about what did nuclear engineers, what did nuclear science look like in 1945? It was multinational, massive budgets, massive number of laboratories, all embedded into a system, right? There was no such thing on Indian soil at that point of time. And the kind of people required to run a program of this kind were also not in high number, right? So if you look at the Indians who, tried to think about this program at that point of time. There were three labs who were very actively thinking of this and also since the late 1930s. So not, you know, after 1945 when, when uh, the first bombs were used. And their motivations were different to each other. So if you look at Meghnath Saha, um, he sent a student of his, Basanti Dulal Nag Chaudhary, to Ernest Lawrence's laboratory in Berkeley. C.V. Raman from the Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore, sent his student, R.S. Krishnan, to the Cavendish. And then we'll come to Homi Jangir Bhava and others in a second. But when you look at these two laboratories, what were they trying to do? They were trying to establish cutting edge of frontier physics in their departments. They were not thinking of state programs. They were not thinking of, you know, uh, massively sort of high budgets. They were thinking of one 
discipline within a larger department of physics, except nuclear physics and nuclear engineering had escaped that, you know, through the 10 years, uh, not even 10 years actually, since 1940 to 1945, it was irreversibly changed. And in, into this context comes Humi Jangir Baba, who understands what's happening. But also I think what we miss often is that his was the only discipline among the three main actors that, you know, we see. So he was a cosmic ray physicist, which in a way was the precursor to nuclear physics and particle physics, right? Because they are trying to understand essentially cosmic ray showers. And whereas um, Meghna Sa was an astrophysicist and C.V. Raman, you know, did light scattering. And so they knew that nuclear physics was the new frontier of the field and they wanted their departments to have it. Whereas Homi Jangir Baba was in a discipline that itself was making a transition potentially to studying in the laboratory what they were otherwise studying in nature. right? So in many ways, cognitively, he was prepared to understand this massive transition. It doesn't mean that the others did not, but they had institutions and departments they were already running into which they tried to fit this new agenda. Whereas in many ways, Homi Jangir Baba, being the younger of the three or the youngest of the three, got the chance to say, this is where nuclear physics is. And he's doing this in the early 1940s, right? And, and this is now, I, I know how this can be scaled up. We're going to have an institution that's entirely dedicated to this work. And that's how Tata Institute of Fundamental Research is born, right? So if you see their motivations, they are very different. They start congealing with, and this is, you know, this is the, the beautiful moments in history which you rarely, rarely kind of, you know, find. So 1945, the use of atomic bombs, 1947, India gets independent. And it is in these, and, and the, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research is established in 1944. This is sort of, these are the three to four years that in many ways lay the, found, not, not in many ways, these are the three to four years that lay the foundations for what the program would become. And I think often what we have seen in the last 20 years is an observation from people who study the nuclear program that, it, that we went for centralization, we went for concentration, and it was sort of um, in many ways hidden from the public eye. While all of these things are true, I think what we want to do is also set this in context. Everywhere in the world, the solution was similar. So if you look, look at, and this is why the argument for budgets is very, very important. In the late 1940s, experimental nuclear physics was no longer done in, in sort of, you know, small labs anymore. Euro, the European answer was an international one. They established CERN in the 1950s because they couldn't afford to do research at that scale nationally. What was a new country like India supposed to do? Even in the US, which was probably the best endowed and you know, where research in experimental nuclear physics still continued in the universities, they formed university consortias. So Brookhaven and, and Argonne and other labs where nine to 10 universities came together to do that research because you couldn't any longer do it alone. And so when you look at that and then you look at India, it's no surprise that the choice, and, and by politically, I don't mean politics, I mean in terms of policy, the choice of having one reasonably well-equipped facility over several was a natural one because there weren't that many resources at that point to nurture more than one facility. 
Now, of course, somewhere down the line, this could have changed and it didn't. And I think that's a different question uh, to resolve and you know how priorities change, etc. But at this founding moment, you have essentially a bunch of scientists who are motivated because it's it's the new newest sort of, you know, the most exciting frontier. And the state, which finds it in its interest, especially after 45, because of, you know, political reasons. And when these converge, a centralized facility emerges. And the centralized facility is one which is imagined as a large institution as opposed to a university department, right? And so th- this is sort of, this is important to remember because this has had consequences for down the line, right? Like, I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of, while um, the establishment, the nuclear establishment, so to speak, has differentiated, has many, many more arms now than it had, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, the fundamental structure still remains the same, right? Like at the heart of it, it is centralized. It is that one, um, you know, institution driving the agenda. It has a certain number of satellite um, institutions that do the theoretical work um, or, you know, the research work, but it feeds into that sort of system. And I think it, it's also continued to a significant extent, but in very, very different ways for the space program. So, yes, um, I have a lot of sort of threads to pick up from your response. Um, I will first start with what you said about centralized um sort of centers for research in the in the 40s and post-1945. How much of um, India's agenda or nuclear program was driven by collaboration with the Europeans or America? And how much how much of it was still kept, like you said, secret and you know, uh, we're not going to reveal what we're up to, but we need to know because again, you pointed out there weren't many individuals, so information has to be shared, and you have to look overseas um, to see what people are doing and how they're doing it. Yeah. So I think while the trajectory there was, how should I put it? There was there was guardedness around the trajectories. What was happening was not a secret in in some ways, right? Because anyone who knows anything about experimental nuclear physics knows that if you have a reactor, you have the ability to work towards a bomb, right? So it's a dual use technology. That's why it's a dual use technology because if you know how to run a reactor, essentially you can work out the path toward making uh, making a bomb. And so, uh, plus the technology wasn't a secret because, you know, many, I mean, you know, the, you understood the explosive power of the atomic nucleus, right? Like, and so in a sense, it wasn't secret in terms of the knowledge of it, but the trajectories, of course, were guarded, right? And, that having said, while the United States had a very, well, relatively strict policy of not engaging uh, in trade or uh, exchange of uh, nuclear knowledge, which it actually even imposed on Europeans up until, you know, the 50s. Um, well, the, the big shock was 1949 when the Soviets tested uh, their nuclear device and uh, the Americans had not expected that. And so it was very clear that they would have to start having allies not only for strategic reasons, but also otherwise. And I think uh, there's a lovely quote from Isidore Rabi, who said, who in fact was a moving uh, force behind the establishment of CERN. And, and Rabi at that point of time was in, was in the United States. And he said, we need people to talk to. Because how do we know that we are not going down a path which is actually you know, going nowhere? So 
that's how scientific research is conducted, that several laboratories work on similar problems. And so, you know, you, you need people to talk to. So, so I think already with the Soviet uh, tests, it was clear that there would have to be some sort of an international dialogue. And, you know, I mean, Atoms for Peace is 1955, which is sort of fairly soon, uh, which of course is again kind of uh, injected with a major shock with Sputnik in 57. But coming back to India, which is what you asked me, um, both the scholarship and the ex and the exchanges in this field are international no matter where you go. Nobody, literally nobody did it alone, right? So it's, um, you know, so so in the case of India, well, we, you know, the Indian scientists had trained in the, in the US and in the UK. Um, the French worked very closely with the Indians as well. Um, and so, yes, so, so, so there was, there was exchange of both knowledge, but also technologies. Um, after 1955, much more so than before 1955. I mean, in fact, there were, there were sort of ridiculous moments before 1955 when the Americans wouldn't even sell, uh, silk balloons for cosmic ray experiments to the Indians. Uh, but that, that of course changes. And in 1955, you have, you have industrial houses like Westinghouse, um, wanting to sell reactors to the world and that, and in Geneva, the the Americans signed many a deal, uh, you know, including with Iran, and uh, uh, to to provide reactors to, and and it was pushed both by industry, uh, but also also politically, um, and so like anywhere else, the Indians too were talking to other people. The Indians too were building um, the apparatus, the infrastructure, the establishment in um, collaboration with people from all around. So my next question is, of course, about 1945 and where you, you've written about this. And again, we were talking about it, where you said the association of nuclear research after 1945 cannot be delinked from nuclear weapons. And I think what happens is when we talk about India's nuclear program or India's history of India's nuclear program, it's the bomb that comes to mm -hmm. mind first. Uh, whereas like you were just talking about, the the frontier was being explored yeah. almost a decade uh, before 1945. So now, do you, given the current geopolitical environment that we're in, is it possible to delink the uses of nuclear energy, um, should we look? Should we be looking to? Should the next milestone for the Indian nuclear program be to address climate change, to address energy needs, uh, clean technology? Um, and this, I'm saying, also in the context of India's policy of no first use when it comes to nuclear weapons. So is it possible to de-link the two? And will India be able to do it? Also, will the world kind of allow, will the structures and institutions allow for something like this? Mm. So it's a difficult question. Let me try to parse it out in two sections. Uh, the first being, you know, what's historically been the case and where things stand. And the ought to, which kind of brings in a more normative element, which would be an opinion, an informed opinion, but nonetheless an opinion, I'll uh, sort of take as the second. So I think 
energy in many ways has been less of a priority for many countries in the world, India included, unlike, say, France, where nuclear energy has been, you know, uh, a pretty, well, contributes a significant portion of the energy needs of, of, the, of the state or of the country. And that's where things are. I mean, in, that's where things stand also for India. And uh, I had a conversation with Emar Srinivasan um, a few months ago, probably, probably even late last year. It's a public conversation where he says so quite explicitly that, you know, it is, this hasn't been a priority area. Now, this is... Now, why is this the case? It is extremely resource intensive. Right? It is very, very resource intensive and to very directly to your question about delinking. Frankly, I don't see any ground, historical or otherwise, that will allow for that separation to be made. Simply because it's not possible. Right? The two the, the capability it they aren't, I mean, there, there are two outcomes, but the capability is the same. And so I don't think delinking is something that one could do even when one wanted. Right, because you just are capable, period. And in terms of the ought to, right, like where, what should be the milestones, etc. I mean, you know, it's a very, very hard question to answer. I mean, you know, this would be simply a, an opinion and and a moral stand um, that one could take with reference to uh, the nuclear, uh, nu with reference to nuclear, air, with reference to nuclear energy, uh, nuclear power. Personally, I think it is very hard to make a strong case for nuclear energy up until we found a feasible and a good way to deal with nuclear waste or what, what remains after you know, the fuel's been spent. And I don't think we have a good answer. So in many ways, it's, it's probably the most risky of alternative energy sources that we are exploring right now. And so I think up until then, I find it difficult to accept that as the most viable alternative to um, having energy sources. And this is separate from an opinion on the strategic use of, of weapons, irrespective of first use or not. right? And so I think it, it needs to be worked through far much more in the laboratory and elsewhere, uh, because these are, these are not technical questions with a technical solution. These are highly political questions with social and political answers to them, right? Like they, these would have to be democratically resolved apart from finding the purely technical solution to um, manage nuclear waste. But of course, the desire to do so is a political one, right? Um, or a social one or, a, or, or one of planetary health and, and justice and, you know, whatnot. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a messy bucket. Uh, and just when you think it's not messy, it becomes messy again. I mean, if you look at what's happening uh, in, in Ukraine right now, for example, uh, you do have experts opining on what would be the case if Ukraine had not, um, you know, in a sense, demilitarized in the, in the way it did uh, after, the, after 1989. Um, or 1991, sorry. So, um, it's a question that rears its, its head again and again and again in geopolitics, right? Like, be it North Korea, be it Iran, be it um, Ukraine now. And so, and it's a question that doesn't go away. And that's why you know that it's an option that won't go away. And if it's an option that's not going away, then it's a very, very uh, 
tough world to live in. So I'm not saying I have answers, but I do think if nuclear energy was a question that was even possible to discuss separately from what happens around us, then the question of nuclear waste would have to be resolved far better than it is now in order for that to be uh, pursued in a, in a serious way. Um, and, you know, we have it. We have the dual-use technology in this world. And um, it's a balancing act that one doesn't know how it tips and one hopes it doesn't tip in the wrong direction. So for my last question, I think I'll just go back to a point that you made earlier about uh, experimental nuclear physics and the, the kind of patronage needed for, uh, for it to take off in India at a scale that was impactful. Yeah. And, and again, something that you mentioned just now about the question of how do you manage nuclear waste where, where it has to not just be a technical solution, but also a political and social solution. So coming, when we talk about the patronage and, you know, we've seen that it has been highly centralized from the beginning. Um, where do you see that going? Does it need to diversify? Should India, or does it have to be state driven or, you know, driven by private individuals? Does it have to be a partnership? How do you see patronage for India's nuclear program going forward? I could be wrong, but I don't know of any country where it's not state-driven. And it's precisely because of its dual nature of use, right? That um, it is such a dangerous technology, right? That it has been seen it is such a dangerous technology that most countries have not seen reason to move, move it out of state control or state regulation or state observation and state oversight. And yeah, I mean, I, 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 would, I would probably stay with that. I would probably stay with that because states are a part of a part of a larger international system. There are geopolitical pressures, ways of control, alliances, incentives, um, a range of tools to be able to negotiate and manage relationships between states. When it becomes a matter of negotiation with either individuals or corporations or um, other agencies, we don't really have a system of effective checks and controls. So I don't um, see room for changing that. Now, what happens after energy is produced, for example, and the energy is put on the grid? I mean, you know, that is that has been discussed now for several years and, you know, uh, it's it remains problematic, it needs to be managed better, etc. But, you know, I mean, that, that debate is a known debate and, you know, one can one can find good solutions there, etc. Um, you know, to, to manage distribution, to manage waste, to manage a range of things. 
So I think that's a, that's a that's a different discussion, and and there I wouldn't have such a strong opinion. But I think for the back end, so to speak, of of uh, nuclear establishments, nuclear facilities, nuclear infrastructure, uh, it would be difficult to imagine that um, doing well outside of state control. On that note, I'm sure this episode is uh, as encouraging and inspiring as the TV series, and we have more people taking an interest no in <laughs> in science and India's scientific history. Um, I think I just close by quoting um, your friend and colleague Srinath Raghavan, who said, um, "History doesn't teach any lessons; historians do." So, um, thank you for the work that you do and keeping us all informed about India's nuclear history and uh, the lessons that we can learn from it. Thank you, thank you. I mean, I, you know, to Srinath's uh, wonderful quote, I would only add one more sentence, which is to say that historians can offer insights from the past, and what we make of those insights, of course, is up to us as a polity, as a society, um, as humanity. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for having me. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.